Let us pray. Father, indeed, we do pray that you would help us to trust you daily more and more. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. We may be seated. Good morning, everyone. So good to see you. And good morning to everyone watching via the live stream as well. So glad that you've joined us. I want to invite you to take out your Bibles or devices with Scripture on them and turn to our Gospel reading from the 19th chapter of St. Luke's Gospel. It's the story of Zacchaeus, a story that is familiar to many of us. When I hear about Zacchaeus, it brings back for me childhood memories from Sunday school. Who else can remember that, that song we used to sing about Zacchaeus was a wee little man? A wee little man was he? Remember that? Yes. And every time I read this account in Scripture, that's what comes to my mind. The account of Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus is in a line of continuity stretching all the way back through the early verses of Luke chapter 18. Last week, Mother Jessica Hughes, our missionary to Uganda, spoke of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which really set the trajectory in anticipation of Jesus' real-life encounter with Zacchaeus. Because what Jesus described by teaching through a parable in Luke 18, 9 through 14 with the Pharisee and the tax collector, we now see demonstrated in a real-life encounter with Zacchaeus. Sandwiched in between those two events, the parable and Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus, is also Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler in Matthew 18, 18 through 30, which really stands in stark contrast to the encounter with Zacchaeus. And this account of the rich young ruler is woven into this thread as well. Everything in Luke 18, the parables, the rich young ruler, all of this takes place as Jesus is moving toward Jericho and ultimately gradually making his way to his destination of Jerusalem where he will lay down his life. Jericho is about 15 miles east of Jerusalem. And the encounter between Jesus and Zacchaeus takes place after Jesus has arrived in Jericho and is passing through the town. Verse 1 of chapter 19 clearly states this. And this is where we pick up with our focus this morning. Verses 2 through 4 of Luke 19 tell us some important facts about Zacchaeus. First, we learn that he was a chief tax collector and was rich. This is not a compliment. Zacchaeus belonged to a class of people by his own choice who were universally despised. Despised by faithful Jews, considered unclean, and beyond the reach and bounds of God's salvation to Israel. Even if, like Zacchaeus, they had been born into a Jewish family. But they weren't only despised by Jews. They were also despised by most of the Gentile populace in the Roman world as well. You see, tax collectors were experts in extortion. They were corrupt, and their greed had no limits. This is the life that Zacchaeus had chosen for himself and which had made him a very wealthy man. He was, again, a chief tax collector. A chief tax collector in 
Jericho, one of the wealthiest cities in Palestine, located in the most fertile area in all of Palestine. The city also had a Herodian palace, meaning one of the palaces for Herod and his relatives spent some of their time. And all of this brought many wealthy people, brought commerce and trade to the city. So tax revenues in Jericho would have been rather extensive. Now, I know we've talked about this a little bit in the past, but let me explain again how the whole tax collector system worked at that time. It wasn't anything like we understand today. Basically, a person would put in a bid for a certain geographic area. And the person with the highest bid was then designated the tax collector or the chief tax collector for that reason, guaranteeing a certain money amount of money, the amount they had bid to the Roman authorities. Now, clearly Jericho with its prosperity, with the fertile land in the area would have commanded a very high bid. But beyond that, how the tax collector made his living was that he added above and beyond the bid that was guaranteed to the Roman authorities. And there was no ceiling or cap on the amount that the tax collector was allowed to collect. It was whatever they could squeeze out of people or maybe wrench out of people is the better way to put it. So they were contacted for sales and custom taxes and then Zacchaeus, as a chief tax collector, would have hired collectors to work under him for a certain cut or a certain percentage of the income. I think the closest analogy that I could think of as I was preparing this sermon is kind of, if you know anything about the structure of, not that I'm an expert in this, let me be clear, but the structure of organized crime in the United States and, and ma the mafia and that sort of thing. You have, you know, soldiers and crew members and they collect money and they owe a certain percentage of that to their crew leader or their capo or captain. And then that person owes more to the person above him and it trickles all the way up to the boss and the family. And that's kind of how the tax collector system worked. And Zacchaeus was right there like a capo in the system, collecting from those under him and then passing it on, a portion onto the Roman authorities. No wonder he was despised. Second, we read in verse 3 that he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So there are several things to note here of significance. First, Zacchaeus was at least curious or intrigued by Jesus. He wanted at least to get a glimpse of Jesus. It's likely that he had heard accounts of Jesus' ministry, but he wanted to see for himself. But the crowds blocked him. And this was not simply because of the throngs of people surrounding Jesus. The reality is, Zacchaeus was despised. He was hated. And nobody was going to do him the favor of allowing him to press through the crowd. Nobody was going to look out for what he, of all people, wanted. So he is physically on the outside, but Zacchaeus is also figuratively on the outside and pushed to the margins of society because of who he is and the life he had chosen for himself. The account of his stature, the word used here, also touches on this. Yes, Zacchaeus was physically short, probably less than five feet tall in his day. But stature here also speaks of how he was viewed 
by others, how he was despised, that he was viewed of low repute and hated. John Nolan in his commentary on this text says this, despite the man's wealth and official power, he is quite unable to penetrate the crowd. He is clearly a social outsider whose littleness in the eyes of others is more than physical. <coughs> Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus, but he is about to experience an incredible surprise because exponentially more importantly, Jesus, the Savior of the world, is seeking him. Look at verses 5 through 10 with me. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. <coughs> so what does this encounter with Jesus here teach us? There are three points, I believe, that we see in this text that I want to briefly emphasize this morning. The first one is this. Nobody is beyond the reach of salvation through Christ. Did you hear that? Nobody is beyond the reach of salvation through Christ. Even a social nobody, a legalized thief, an extortionist like Zacchaeus can truly be saved. Because in Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus' power can transform even the most seemingly corrupt and debauched human heart. Nobody, nobody is beyond the reach of God's grace. Do you hear that? That is not just a rhetorical question I'm asking. Do you hear that? Do you hear that for yourself, for your neighbors, for your coworkers? For people all throughout this community, do we hear that, All Saints Church? Russell Moore, a theologian and ethicist, writes this. The next Billy Graham might be a drunk right now. The next Jonathan Edwards might be the man driving in front of you with the Dar Darwin Fish bumper decal. The next Charles Wesley might currently be a misogynistic, profanity-spewing hip-hop artist. The next Charles Spurgeon might be managing an abortion clinic today. The next Mother Teresa might be a heroin-addicted porn star this week. The next Augustine of Hippo might be a sexually promiscuous cult member right now, just like, come to think of it, the first Augustine of Hippo was. But the Spirit of God can turn all that around and, it, and seems to delight to do so. The new birth doesn't just transform lives, creating repentance and faith. It also provides new leadership to the church and fulfills Jesus' promise to gift his church with everything needed for her onward march through space and time. 
Do we believe this, All Saints Church? As we look to our community, is this the lens through which you and I view people, people in need of Jesus, in need of the transforming power of the gospel? We must never be like the crowds in Jericho who tried to keep Zacchaeus from seeing Jesus. Instead of creating barriers for people coming to Christ and hearing the gospel, we must tear those barriers down and push them aside. We must invite people in to experience Christ and to experience his transforming power, which is the answer to all their misery and lostness. And only Jesus can fix and transform those things and make them new creations in him. Nobody is beyond the reach of salvation through Christ. Second, our hearts must align with God's heart. In other words, our response must be different if we truly have experienced God's grace as a reality in our own lives. We must not be like those crowds in Jericho on that day. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. What we read about Zacchaeus is this. He hurried and came down and received him joyfully and received their points to more than just welcoming or saying hi to Jesus. It's about embracing all that Jesus is, receiving all that Jesus is. And Zacchaeus' life in this moment is being radically transformed. But what did those around him do? They grumbled. And grumbling in the Gospels is always portrayed as something very negative. And beyond grumbling, they criticized Jesus himself for extending salvation and kindness to Zacchaeus. I think that posits the question for us that we need to ask ourselves as we examine ourselves. Is there any of this attitude, this way of thinking in me or in you? Reaching out to sinners, and every one of us is a sinner, but reaching out to people who are lost, reaching out to people trapped in sin, reaching out to people who don't know Jesus won't make you and me dirty if we're anchored in Christ. Did you hear that? You're not somehow going to be contaminated or polluted. Now, the key here is staying anchored in Christ. It doesn't mean that we become like the world. It doesn't mean we start acting and behaving and thinking and engaging in the ways of the world. We're called to be salts, to be that savor of Christ in the world. We're called to be light, the light of Christ. And when we walk into the world and we engage people who don't know Christ as that savor of Christ, they taste and see the goodness and the reality of Christ. When we walk into those situations with the light of Christ, the light of Christ in us, Christ, not us, dispels the darkness and shines God's light into their lives. According to the U.S. Center for Disease Control, every day about 10 people die from unintentional drowning. Drowning ranks fifth among the leading causes of an unintentional injury death in the U.S. But there is one huge misconception around drown about drowning. 
like we see on TV sometimes, many people assume that a drowning person will splash and yell and wave for help. Why wouldn't you? Actually, drowning is far from obvious. A report from the Journal of the U.S. Coast Guard Search and Rescue has identified what is the instinctive drowning response. When someone is drowning, the person will instinctively display the following five characteristics, according to the U.S. Coast Guard, who ought to know what they're talking about with this sort of thing. One, except in rare cases, drowning people are physically unable to call for help. That's because we're designed to breathe first and speak later. Second, drowning people can't stay above the water long enough for them to exhale, inhale, and call for help. Third, drowning people cannot wave for help. They are forced to extend their arms laterally and press down on the water's surface. Four, drowning people cannot voluntarily move toward a rescuer or reach out for a piece of rescue equipment. And fifth, unless rescued by a trained lifeguard, people drowning can only struggle on the surface of the water for 20 to 60 seconds before sinking. The Coast Guard emphasizes that the instinctive drowning response is triggered by a host of autonomic nervous system responses. In other words, it's completely involuntary, unlearned, and unavoidable. We can make that physical illustration transition to the spiritual realm and speak figuratively. What's that say to us? It is incumbent upon us, brothers and sisters. It's incumbent upon you and me to reach out to the lost, to see them suffering and lost in silence and not even knowing where to turn or how to reach out for help. Our Lord Jesus, the sinless Son of God, reached out to those who many in the culture viewed as beyond the reach of God's grace. And we see this especially emphasized in St. Luke's Gospel. Luke is the only one of the four evangelists, the four Gospel writers, who was a Gentile. And Luke brings particular emphasis or focus on Jesus reaching out to people who are outside the normal bounds of Jewish society. The demon-possessed, lepers, strangers and aliens, the woman with the issue of blood, Samaritans, tax collectors. And Jesus is still doing this. The question, the challenge for you and for me is, will we yield ourselves? Will we allow God to do his good and gracious work in us so that we will be more and more fully aligned with God's heart? Will we stretch ourselves? Will we allow God to stretch us more and more to reach out to people whose society, sometimes even so-called polite Christians, may have written off? God has not written them off. And he isn't just calling us to reach them out there. That is certainly where he sends us and that is where we must start just as Jesus did. But are we willing to invite them in? Into our homes, into our church, 
into fellowship with us? Are we willing to, willing to invite them in? And I know theoretically in our minds, we say yes, I say yes. But are you and I okay if this church gets filled with people who are seeking Jesus, who are like Zacchaeus? Knowing that just like us, when we came to Christ, we didn't come to Christ with all our stuff fixed and then accept Christ. No, we come to Jesus with all of our junk and our mess and our sin. And then through an encounter with him in becoming a disciple of Christ, then he works his transforming power and does his transformation in our lives. The reality is if we're going to reach out to people as Jesus did, if we're going to reach out to people like the Zacchaeuses of the world, church will get messy at times. Did you hear that? And it will get uncomfortable at times. And yet this is what God is calling us to do. I believe we need to ask God. This is not a criticism. This is an exhortation and an encouragement to us. We need to ask God what he is calling us to in the days ahead. Yes, he's already called us to things. And God bless you all. And I said this in first service. All of you are already stepping into the doors that God has opened to us as a church and moving into that call and the future he has for us. And so many of you are living daily as vibrant, bright witnesses for Christ in the workplace, in your homes, as a part of this church. And you demonstrate Christ's love and his transforming power. But what is God calling us to? What are the next steps? If we seek God and ask him, he will indeed show us what is next. He will show us what he has in store for us in the days ahead. And the question for us is how do we need to prepare our hearts and our church for that? Will we trust him and invite Jesus to continue to more fully align our hearts and priorities, the priorities of our lives, the priorities of All Saints Church with his priorities? Will we trust God to continue to unfold to us the mission he is calling us to? And can we trust him to step out into that calling as he reveals it to us, even if we don't have everything figured out down the road? We don't know all of the next steps or what it means, but we know God is saying, this is where I have you and this is where I'm moving you to. Can we trust him? We need to because our hearts must grow to ever more and increasingly reflect the heart of God. And then finally, true transformation bears fruit. What is clear in this encounter, even though it is not stated explicitly, is that Zacchaeus has encountered and been made a new creation through the transforming power of Jesus. Jesus affirms this. Listen to verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. The actions of Zacchaeus in verse 9 are not about salvation by works, earning your salvation. Rather, they are the first outward expressions of the transformation that God is bringing to pass in his heart, that God is bringing to pass in his innermost being. 
hear this and don't miss it. Inward transformation will work itself out in our lives and lead to change and it will lead to amendment of life. The two things that we see here exemplified in Zacchaeus are repentance and restitution. Repentance, we're going one way very simply and by God's grace and power, we turn and go another way. We go toward God instead of away from God and his kingdom priorities. And then secondly, restitution is making things right as much as is possible within us, to make amends with those who we've harmed, those who we've wounded, those who we've hurt, those who, those who we've stolen from. And Zacchaeus goes way beyond the requirements of the Old Testament law, clearly showing what God is bringing to pass in his heart and life. Not 10%, but he'll give 50%. For defrauding someone, extorting someone, the required restitution was 20%. But Zacchaeus says he will give 40%. The penalty that was only imposed on those who stole livestock, rustlers. We read about that in Exodus 22, verse 1, where we read, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Repentance... And restitution, these are biblical concepts. These are biblical truths. These are the fruit of God's transformation in people's lives. Somehow, in the church culture of our day, words like repentance and restitution have fallen out of vogue. And yet they're integral to, they're, they're essential to the core and the heart of the gospel. It's not about simply saying some kind of a prayer and you go on your way like everything's fine and you just keep living the way you are and say, oh, well, I'm in Christ. Now, that's not the way it works. It's about entering into a life of discipleship, of God's ongoing transforming work in us. And inward transformation leads to demonstrable godly fruit not works righteousness but the work of God deep inside of us and the righteousness and the new creation he is making us to be and the righteousness he's bringing to pass in our lives works its way out in godly fruit and ways of being and living and doing the world around us is full of people like Zacchaeus people that have been written off despised people who don't even know that they're drowning. Or if they do know that they're drowning, they don't know where or how to cry out for help. The question for us is, as we continue to move into the call that God has placed upon us and he's revealing to us, will we reach out? Will we seek to become ever more fully aligned with the heart of God, our Father. And in doing that, where is God calling you and me to repent? What attitudes and ways of seeing people and approaching situations need to change in me, in me, and in you? As God shows us those things, may we lay them before his feet and repent to be ever more aligned with his heart and his will. 
And then do we trust God enough? May we grow to trust God enough to continue stepping out as he calls us, even when it gets messy, even when it gets hard, even when we don't have our plan all figured out, but we're stepping in faith into his plan. Nobody's beyond the reach of God's grace. May we never forget that. May our hearts be more fully aligned with him so that our lives and the lives of those we touch for the gospel would bear true godly fruit in Christ's kingdom and his glorious work would continue to expand. Let us pray. Father, how grateful we are that you sent Jesus, your son, full of grace and truth. And Father, we give you thanks that no one, including each of us, was or is beyond the reach of your transforming grace. So Lord, give us your heart. Give us your eyes as we look to our neighbors, as we look to our community, that our hearts would be filled with compassion, that our hearts be filled with godly, gracious, loving zeal to be that salt and that light you've called us to be. And Lord, Give us grace to walk into and live into that mission which you continue to unfold to us. Laying aside human fears of the flesh and trusting you. Trusting the transforming work of your spirit, your power in us and through us and in our community. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.